HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Zoop Good Really Good, which makes premium flavor-forward broths and broth concentrates crafted with home cooks in mind. For more information, visit www.zoopbroth.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome renowned chef Eric Repair. In this episode, we're going to talk to Eric about fine dining in today's post-pandemic world, the evolution of French food in America, and we'll hear Eric's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're returning to one of Julia's favorite subjects, chefs. There are few people on the planet that Julia admired more than chefs, especially those with classical French training and a passion for being the very best chef they can be. Julia found the innovation, creativity, and attention to craft among the chefs she met in France and later in the United States to be endlessly inspiring. They were the people she wanted to learn from, hang out with, and most importantly, share meals with. I think for Julia, her favorite chefs, as evident in her close collaboration with Chef Jacques Pepin, were Frenchmen who forged careers in America. Someone who embodies the epitome of the French chef who's made good in America is Chef Eric Repair. Eric is the head chef and co-owner of New York's internationally acclaimed four-star seafood restaurant, Le Bernardin, which has held three stars from the Michelin Guide since 2005 and was recently named number one restaurant in the United States and number two in the world by Paris-based global guide, La Liste. Born in the south of France and raised in the tiny principality of Andorra in the Pyrenees, which separate France from Spain, Eric moved to Paris and cooked at the famed La Tour de Jean after graduating from culinary school. He then served as chef poissonnier to Jules Rubichon at Germain. He moved to USA to work with Jean-Louis Paladin at the Watergate Hotel before beginning his 20-year rise to fame at Le Bernardin, founded by French siblings Maggie and Gilbert Lecoz. He earned his first of five four-star ratings from the New York Times at 29 years old. In addition to many accolades, Eric was named Outstanding Chef in the United States in 2003 by the James Beard Foundation. His PBS cooking show, Avec Eric, produced by Julia's longtime producer Jeff Drummond, 
garnered two Daytime Emmy Awards. Eric has authored six cookbooks, including his most recent, Vegetable Simple, published in 2021, as well as My Best, Eric Repair, Avec Eric, On the Line, A Return to Cooking, Le Bernardin, Four Star Simplicity, and his memoir, 32 Yolks, published in 2016. Eric is the vice chairman of the board of the food rescue nonprofit City Harvest, which brings together New York's top chefs and restaurateurs to increase the quality and quantity of food donations to New York's neediest. He is also a practitioner of Zen Buddhism. Eric joins us today to share his perspective on fine dining in a post-pandemic world and his view on how French cooking has evolved in America since Julia's early advocacy. Welcome to the podcast, Chef. Thank you very much. That's a great introduction. I, could have, I couldn't have done better. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get anything wrong. Um, well, it's, you know, I think you've had an amazing career and it's really fascinating. It's great to encapsulize it for, you know, maybe the few listeners who maybe never ate in your restaurant or heard of you before. So the last few years have been tumultuous for everybody and certainly in the restaurant business. And you have such a tremendous tenure as a fine dining chef at a top restaurant in America. And I was just curious to hear from you what you think is happening in terms of fine dining in America right now. And also maybe whether you see Le Bernardin as an outlier or, or what's your perspective? Well, fine dining has evolved a lot and it's still evolving, uh, especially in America. And uh, when we look at fine dining, uh, when we look at the 80s, for instance, uh, the French uh, chefs were at the top of fine dining. There was not too many American chefs that were interested or were creating fine dining experiences. And it was, um, I would call it very French, which is perceived by the American public, especially today, as very um, stuffy. The food was uh, very classic and therefore very rich. And from those days, from the late 70s and the 80s, it has been a tremendous evolution. Uh, French cuisine, first of all, has, has been fusioning with some other cuisines in the world, has been modernized. In terms of um, hospitality, I would say that today in, in uh, um, fine dining, you find a lot of... Uh, interaction in between the waiters and and the staff in the dining room and even a chef going out in the dining room with the clients, which was not the case in, in those years. And of course, uh, the architecture of the restaurant has changed tremendously as well. And uh, uh, even the lighting is very essential today in a, in a fine dining restaurant, which nobody cared about lighting in the 70s. It was very bright rooms or very dark rooms, but Nothing, nothing else. Uh, so it, it's a const, constant evolution. Le Bernardin opened in 1986 in um, in New York City and has been also uh, evolving. And uh, I am at Le Bernardin since '91. And same thing. I have been um, uh, really recreating uh, an experience for the clientele that comes here. That is very. Um, demanding and they should, but also who are asking for different experience. And it's, it's our work, our job is to really find out what the client is looking for. Some people come here because they are on a date. Some more people are uh, foodies and they're really interested by the, the experience in between the food and the service. And you see them right away with their cell phone, taking pictures and uh, for in their social media or for themselves. You see people who are coming here to um, to close deals, people who celebrate anniversaries and so on. So we deliver a distinctive experience for everybody else uh, in the room. And uh, we want to make sure that the clientele is happy, at ease, not intimidated. Um, and they, when they leave, they, they leave with a big smile on their face. And that's that's what fine dining has become. And do you think that same evolution or a version of that evolution has is, is occurred in France? I hadn't thought about that before, the difference in hospitality of 
meals I've had in France at all levels, you don't generally get the, the, the servers giving you a long spiel about what you're about to eat or where it's from. Although I feel like if you engage them in conversation and you ask the question of them, they would explain. Yes, and this, this is, the, to me, it's how you judge good service. If you see someone coming and you, it's a table and you see people in business and they're very engaged in a discussion and, and as a waiter, you, you can hear some pieces of conversation and you realize it, it's a business lunch or, or dinner, you're not going to start to talk about the fishermen in Maine and spend five minutes about the boat, the name of the boat and the name <laughs> of the fishermen and, and the fact that he's lefty and he, he, he caught the scallops like that, scuba diving, and it came by, you know, like you don't, go into those details. Now, if you have a table that is interested, you have to read the mind of the client. And yes, you engage and, and they may be very interested in knowing the process, how, how for instance, how the scallops are, are harvested. Like at Le Bernardin, we served only scuba dive uh, scallops because the quality of the, 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 the scallop is better, but also it's... Um, it's a very environmental uh, friendly. You do not drag the bottom of the ocean with a boat and so on. So we, we do that, but we're not going to tell you if you are not interested. Mm. I was curious if you feel like the pandemic, because I was struck by in, in preparing to talk to you, that it seems like Le Bernardin has sort of weathered the, the pandemic especially as a high-end restaurant, maybe better than a lot. And I was curious, is that meant that you've kind of just kept doing the same thing or have you have you changed your approach either to the menu or actually how you, you run the restaurant since the pandemic? I mean, and I'm not asking about the pandemic, like public health uh, regulations. <laughs> well, the, so to go back to the pandemic, it took us by surprise and we were proactive in closing the restaurant uh, I think a week before the government decided to make it mandatory. Uh, and then we were closed. We didn't do takeout because we didn't feel that uh, a piece of fish in a plastic container was representing the, the experience of Le Bernardin. We didn't open a terrace outside because uh, Midtown Times Square was not really the right place to have a terrace in the middle of the winter as well. So we, we were very patient and we, while we were close, we cooked a lot of meals with the help of City Harvest and uh, the help of uh, World Central Kitchen. So we cooked meals uh, during the pandemic to um, doctors and nurses who were coming to New York to support um, the hospitals and they were staying in hotels uh, surrounding us. So it was 400 portions every day. Um, and then when those doctors left, we were we still did uh, feed people, and we did that in shelters, and we did that uh, until December, when we were starting to really be uh, busy again um, at full capacity inside Le Bernardin. So that's what we did during the pandemic. After the pandemic, it was very interesting because we were supported by a lot of New Yorkers a lot of friends, a lot of great clients who were coming to Le Bernardin uh, basically to, of course, have an experience, but really to spend money to support us, mm. to support our team, to make sure that uh, they were leaving good tips for the waiters and so on. And, uh, and that was very, very special. Uh, it, of course, we were very emotional about that. Everybody was emotional after the, after the COVID. And, uh, and it, brought us closer to our clients and to people who, who are regulars of Le Bernardin. Of course, we have a lot of tourists who come and same thing. People like to engage and like to support a restaurant like us. And um, we um, push the envelope to, to say to ourselves, let's be better than the pre-pandemic. Let's, let's analyze who we were during the pandemic in terms of uh, experience and let's deliver something even better. Let's have uh, new dishes. Let's reinvent the menu. Let's do new things for people, come back, and it's still the Bernardin. They know where they are. It, and at the same time, uh, we, 
we have evolved, which is very important in New York or, or anywhere. You have to always move forward. You cannot uh, stay uh, at the same with the same mentality and, and and not evolve because suddenly you are behind. I was struck by looking at your at least what menus you have online. I don't know how up to date they are, but I one thing that I was struck by is that your prices are not that much higher comparatively what other people maybe are experiencing. Maybe those are out of date prices, but is there? Do you feel like you had some advantage if you're seeing this sort of at all levels of dining when it's a set menu or a prefix that that enables you to not have to increase prices so much? Or is that, do you feel like that's a short-lived thing and they're just going to be continuing to rise? I think Le Bernardin was always a very good value considering uh, that is a fine dining establishment and we use the best ingredients and the best china and the best silverwares and everything else. Um, but I always want to be a, a good, very good value for the clients. And um, and before the COVID, we were, we were very well priced. And uh, after the COVID, we had to raise the prices because, of course, uh, as you know, and it's a huge inflation uh, that we are experiencing. But I didn't want to exaggerate. I, I'd rather to be... Um, not so expensive and have people coming back more mm, often mm. and uh, be seen and and appreciated by the clientele who says, well, I go to Le Bernardin and it's a very good experience and the price is very reasonable and they're not greedy over there. And uh, it's very important. I think pe- people f- uh, comment on that a lot. Our, our prices that you saw on the on our website are very accurate. They, rep- they represent what we are today. And uh, and because of that, the dining room is full lunch and dinner every day of the week, and we are doing extremely well. Well, that's great to hear. I, I, we, we probably should mention, though, for the average listener, they are higher than what you might pay for dinner at Cheesecake Factory or Chipotle. But they're, um, the, com- the comparison I was making is to what you might spend at not even a fine dining restaurant per person these days, but a higher end restaurant or in comparison to other tasting menus, because certainly pre-pandemic to spend $250 or 250 euros on a tasting menu was pretty standard, um, if not in the realm of, as Eric was phrasing it, good value. Also, uh, when you look at tasting menus and the pricing, you have to look what the, the restaurants are giving you. So, some testing menus are fairly expensive. And when I l- look at the ingredients that the restaurants are serving, some of them, and I, I'm, of course, I'm not going to mention. <laughs> I'm not, I won't ask you either. Go ahead. I don't see any, anything, not, I don't see anything luxurious really on those menus. And I'm, I'm puzzled. But if you come to the Bernardin, you have, um, you have lobster and langoustine and caviar and truffles and, exotic mushroom and you I mean you have a lot of luxurious items and uh, and I think also that makes the, the, the difference people come and they're like wow over there I was eating peas and, and <laughs> fava beans and here yes I have peas and fava beans but it's truffles with it and I like truffles <laughs> well I think I think that very much um, reflects a French attitude toward fine dining there should be a an element of luxe and richness to it beyond just maybe that it's, you know, handpicked by little birds on a farm upstate or something. (laughs) No, I think the quality of the product and the fact that it's um, uh, high quality and items that are exotic or rare or or luxurious, it's definitely something that defines fine dining other than the quality of the service and the quality of whatever goes on the table with the glasses, the china. I mean, you can, our glasses uh, and china are, are beautiful, of course, but they are very expensive. And when you come here, you're not going to find them everywhere else. It's something that is very, um, or you can, you can find them with a, a friend of ours who has a fine dining restaurant, but you will not find them in a bistro or anywhere like that. So it, it, it's a holistic experience. Fine dining is not just about the food, not just about the service, nor the ambience. It's everything. 
No, I think that's great. And I appreciate you making that distinction for people to keep in mind when they go. And that, I think, to me, very much reflects the the, the history of fine dining as a, as a kind of French convention, right? In, in fresh, French restaurants that do fine dining, that is very well considered, right? What the, the whole experience. Yes, it's. I mean, it's called in French. They call it l'art de la table, the art of the table. Which actually um, now, that style of um, l'art de la table, which is typical to France, is protected by UNESCO. And uh, I think it's important because it it could disappear. But uh, if we are very aware of how beautiful it is. Um, and if, if it is protected and, and people are, are enjoying it, it will evolve, of course, and move forward, but it will always be very, very special. And again, it will always be a holistic experience. It's from the tablecloth to the china to the flowers to the glass glassware and, and silverwares and everything else. Oh, I love that. I hadn't heard that phrase before. I think that, that 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 seems like good fodder for a future episode. So, <laughs> as we were talking about fine dining, th- this is slightly a, almost the same question or subject we've covered, but I want to change it to a more general kind of view than just fine dining. As you were talking about the difference between fine dining and bistro food and and experience, so I was curious. I was just thinking about. Julia's advocacy for French food when she arrived in America, back in America in 1962, 61, 62, having been in France and abroad. And I've, I feel like personally, like French food has gone through so many evolutions of how it's consumed, how it's presented by restaurateurs and chefs. And I was just curious if, if you see this same kind of evolution in the overall offerings and consumption of French food in America as having evolved and and been refined over the decades? Or does it strike you that kind of average, you know, non-fancy, non-fine dining French food in America is sort of static and still the same? Like, what would Julia think if she came back? I think Julia will be be definitely surprised, uh, but I think she will be very happy. so bistros and brasseries very often uh, are serving some very traditional food and and the menus don't necessarily evolve uh, much, but you go to a bistro to have a good steak frites béarnaise or to have an onion soup or to have classic dishes like that. You don't go to, the bist- to a bistro to have, to have an experience. Uh, at the level of fine dining. You just go for basically French comfort food and you don't want anyone to start to play with your onion soup and you don't want the onion soup to have some uh, matcha tea in it and the dash tea. And the, you want your onion soup with the, the crouton and the, and the cheese and the onion and that rich broth and that's what you, what you are looking for. And a Béarnaise is a Béarnaise. You don't want to see some... Uh, exotic ingredients from South America in your Béarnaise. It doesn't make any sense. Now, um, in fine dining, it is a natural fusion that is uh, mixed with the French influence. And and today you see see ingredients coming from all over the world and techniques that are um, coming from all over the world that are integrated into into the French techniques. Um, And I think it's it's very important because it's the evolution of French cuisine, and it always comes from from fine dining first. Uh, it has been a lot of changes in 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 French cuisine and uh, especially in fine dining. When when Julia was young, Escoffier was God, and Escoffier defined and codified French cooking, and you were, as a chef, you were following the Escoffier like the Bible. And you were uh, doing exactly what Escoffier was telling you to do. And there was no freedom to really improvise much or to create much. Then Nouvelle Cuisine came, I I would say, in the 70s. And Nouvelle Cuisine was a real revolution. First of all, for the first time, 
chefs were uh, plating their own food in the kitchen. Previously to that, it was done, uh, the food was on platter going to the dining room and the waiters were finishing the plates in the dining room. Mm. So the presentations were never the way the chefs really uh, wanted. Um, the finishing of the sauce, the finishing of whatever it was done at the table was not controlled by the chef. It was controlled by the waiter. And even a good waiter cannot be as good as a chef in his own kitchen. So Nouvelle Cuisine was this incredible, incredible movement. And it was chefs like Paul Bocuse and uh, Michel Guerard and Claude Troigros and, and many other chefs that embraced Nouvelle Cuisine. And then, unfortunately, Nouvelle Cuisine became a caricature and almost like a bad word because sudden, suddenly you will see um, three string beans parallel <laughs> in, in a plate with a tiny, tiny piece of chicken and you will pay a fortune uh, to, have, to have a dish like that because a lot of people didn't understand, not a, a lot of chefs didn't understand uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, didn't have the talent of those big chefs that I mentioned, and uh, Nouvelle Cuisine slowly faded. And then we had contemporary cuisine, which was basically taking a lot of the influence from all, all over the world, like I mentioned, and including it in, in, the, in, in the techniques and, and taste of, and flavors of uh, French cuisine. And uh, in 2000, Ferran Adria revolutionized the world again with molecular cuisine. And everybody was at all with that. And everybody was um, very interested. It was revolutionary. And that um, didn't last long. Uh, and despite the genius of Ferran Adria, was a lot of um, people who tried to copy him and were not doing an amazing job. But I have to say, um, French cuisine and fine dining cuisine uh, integrated into their food a lot of the techniques that Ferran Adriac uh, used mm. because they were infusing power, uh, a lot of flavors with a lot of um, uh, lightness. Uh, those techniques were infusing. Yeah, that concentrate. I mean, it's a very French thing, right? The, which used to exist in, in, well, still exists, but was maybe let's say originated in in a great French, you know, mother sauce would be the the concentration of flavor. And Ferran Adria was taking concentrations of say olive flavor and putting them in a little agar or tapioca ball. Something like that, or many, many other form, or uh, yes, in many different forms and shape. But um, the flavors were very vibrant and very, uh, very interesting. And it was he was making the food much lighter in a sense. So we have integrated that in fine dining and in French cuisine. So as you can see, from Escoffier to Ferran Adria, who was in the 2000, and now we are in 2022, it, and, and we still evolve, um, we, we have seen a lot of changes. So I think that was one of the best explanations of, of the rise and fall of Nouvelle Cuisine, because most people just remember Julia complaining about undercooked uh, green beans. But I love that you brought up the, the origin part of it and how that was really a turning point in food being... Uh, chef-centered. So we're going to take a break and we'll be back for more dissection of French food with Chef Eric Repaire. Stay with us. Zoo Good Really Good is proud to offer home cooks a collection of flavored forward broths and broth concentrates. Sold in glass jars, the gourmet broth lineup includes chicken, beef, veggie, and seafood broths, plus bone broths. For even more versatility, Zoo offers new culinary concentrates available in chicken bone broth, beef bone broth, and savory vegan. All flavor and no fillers, these clean label broth bases easily boost the taste of casseroles, pastas, and rice dishes. Short on time, Zoop just launched new shelf-stable premium soups 
for enjoying a gourmet meal in minutes. All products are free of artificial ingredients, preservatives, gluten, and GMOs, and are available at your favorite retailers across the country, plus online at zooproth.com. Browse recipes and learn more at zooproth.com or by following at zoopgoodreallygood on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back. We're talking to top Franco-American chef Eric Repair about fine dining and French food in America. So, uh, chef, I wanted to pick up on something that you said that struck me in terms of how hospitality focused your discussion of particularly what you're doing at La Bernadette and what to you defines fine dining. Do you actually feel either maybe always or today that actually you think of Le Bernardin as a fine dining restaurant before you think of it as a French restaurant? I think of Le Bernardin as an American, very New York, French, fine dining restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so all of it goes together. Well, it does, because when you enter Le Bernardin, the room is very unique. The ceilings are extremely high. It's a very large room. You feel that you are in New York. You are like, wow, this is... You cannot find this restaurant in another city like that. Mm. Not in, in, Le Bernardin in Paris was a very tiny restaurant uh, with low ceilings compared to what we have now. When you come to Le Bernardin, I think you have this wow effect and you're like, okay, I know where I am. I have a sense of place. I am in New York. Then um, it's fine dining because you realize right away that it's luxurious. It's not, it's not a bistro. It's not even an upscale bistro. It's really like a very luxurious restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then um, when you look at the table, when you look at the way the service is managed and the way we approach uh, serving the clients and the way, and when you look at the menu, you realize it's a French restaurant. And uh, it's a French restaurant that is, again, a very New York restaurant because being in New York means that we are in the middle of the capital of the world where we see people from all over, all, all over the, the planet coming here. Uh, I'm talking about my industry, but... Uh, in any industry, uh, people come with talent and they want, they want to be in New York because it's very competitive in a good way and because uh, it's a lot to learn and they want to also uh, express themselves. So Le Bernardin has this kind of a natural fusion that is infused in our menu. So of course you recognize a lot of French uh, influence, but you will also see a lot of Asian influence, uh, Latino influence, European influence that is not French because uh, it's, it's a, if cooking is an art, you are inspired by your surrounding and by your experience. And being in New York and being the chef that I am, uh, I have the luck to go see other uh, friends who have, who have uh, different cultures and I learn from them and they learn from me, I guess. And I travel as well because today chefs are able to travel and I bring back a lot of influence from my, my trips to, to Le Bernardin and it's, it's in our menu. At the same time, we are not uh, Italian or Japanese or sp Spanish. We are a French restaurant. And I, I was struck by, I, I also think that's really fascinating to really for you, the context of being in New York City matters so much. And it, it is kind of part of, you know, how you perceive what you do, how you apply what you do. And you were talking about the people who come. But I'm also struck by, were you talking about not just your clientele is very international and might be local business and might be tourists, might be people who've come from elsewhere specifically to dine there. But does that also speak to who works in the kitchen and the dining room as well as people who are coming to learn and have a professional working experience at a certain level? Yes, we have people that are uh, very young, very ambitious, and coming from all over the world. And uh, I, I don't know many nationalities we have at Le Bernardin, but very often it, it looks like the UN. <laughs> uh, it's people from Africa, and, and we have 
a lot of employees that come from, of course, South America and Europe, and the majority of the employees are American. Uh, but we have a lot of Asian people coming in training from Korea and Japan and China, and so all of the all of that group of young people, because most most of the time they are young, they they come to to us to learn and uh, and it's also a tradition in our industry to to go to restaurants when you are young and learn different styles from different chefs and move uh, a little bit before you really find your uh, your style and uh, and you establish yourself and uh, it's what it's what we have in our kitchen very creative and very Discipline and motivated uh, staff, and same for the dining room. And um, I think that 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 is really telling as is sort of how it all comes comes together. So um, I oh I was going to ask you whether you also, as you were saying, with the transitions um, of emulating how French restaurants have been been run for a long time, do you offer stages as well? in either a formal or informal way? We do offer stages to mostly culinary students from schools mm. uh, because we we pay all the people who are in stage at Le Bernardin. It's not like you come in stage and you work for free. No, we do not do that because I, I don't like the idea of having people working for free because it's not fair for the employees who are paying, who are working... Uh, for a paycheck, um, so we we pay everybody, and we have stagiaires from schools, and they commit to few few months with us. But sometimes we have uh, some friends or a chef who sends someone from his kitchen, or a client who wants to observe the kitchen for a few days, and and that's okay. We we accept that. We we let it happen, but they do not really learn much in terms of um, being responsible of a task in a the kitchen. They're more observing what's happening in the kitchen. Got it. So you you haven't mentioned, and we haven't talked about a huge amount, that, that also one of the, the, both the big things that Le Bernardin is known for, because that's the main focus, is seafood. But I'm struck by your most recent cookbook being entirely vegetable-focused, and so I was just kind of curious if you feel more drawn in that direction, especially as, you know, especially as one of New York's other top restaurants, 11 Madison Park, has pivoted to an all-vegetarian menu. Is that something we might see from Le Bernardin or even for a week or very unlikely? So I created Vegetable Simple because I love vegetables. I did a lot of seafood uh, cookbooks, and I have another one that will come out next year. Um, I can give you the title as an exclusive. It's going to be called Seafood Simple. But I wanted to do a vegetarian book because when I was young, uh, I lived in the south of France and we had beautiful vegetables and fruits. And my grandmothers and my mother were taking me to the market and we were eating a lot of uh, those vegetables that were deliciously uh, prepared. And uh, I had fond memories of that. And then... I have a house in Long Island, and in the summer, I love to go to the farm stand. I'm very inspired by what I find there. And then I entertain at home. We have a lot of friends, long tables. I cook a lot of vegetables, put them in the middle of the table, and it's very convivial. And and we eat basically uh, a lot of vegetarian meals like that. And I wanted to do that book because it was in my heart. I was very passionate about it. Um, now at Le Bernardin, we have a testing menu that is a vegetarian testing menu for four or five years. And we, uh, so, so obviously pre-COVID, and we, uh, we are pre pretty successful with that menu. We offer a lot of vegetarian uh, options also on the menu. But I believe in, so Le Bernardin is, first of all, you mentioned it, it's a seafood restaurant. We are known for that, and we are very passionate about our seafood. But I like to give choice to people. I don't, I don't have a black and white approach to what um, the client should have as an experience. I like to give options, and people can choose. And uh, if they 
if someone doesn't want to eat fish and wants to have um, something vegetarian, I have no problem with that. It's on our menu. We even have some meat, a couple of meat options too, uh, because sometimes we have a big table of, or we have a client who didn't know we were seafood uh, or, or doesn't like fish. So we, we offer options. And uh, I think it's, it's a middle way that makes everybody happy. That sounds very enlightened, actually, coming from. from um, so I wanted to ask you or give you the chance to talk about City Harvest because I know you're you're very committed to that and you committed to supporting your your friend and ours, Chef Jose Andres, and World Central Kitchen's work. And I was just curious. This is almost an obvious question, but I was curious your perspective or comments from being involved of. You know, is city, city Harvest continuing to see rising demand in the wake of the pandemic and, and with inflation? Or w- what are your, your colleagues there telling you right now? Yes, City Harvest uh, is seeing a lot of demand in New York. The COVID, of course, was the um, catastrophe that brought a lot of people to a poverty level and uh, they were in need of food. And City Harvest step up. And uh, usually at City Harvest, we deliver about 90 million pounds of food a year, about 90 something. During the, the COVID crisis, we, uh, we doubled the quantities with City Harvest. Um, and, and today, City Harvest moved its location in Brooklyn. It's, it's an entire city block. And uh, we have gigantic. Uh, facilities with freezers and fridge and so on and we can we can step up um, delivering food to shelters uh, we deliver food to about 500 plus shelters in New York City we also created a mobile markets which is very interesting they are located in food deserts so let's say in the South Bronx it's nothing but fast food uh, couple of fast food places and that's it. City Harvest create twice a week a market where you have four different vegetables, four or five, two or three different fruits. And whoever has a special ID can come in and choose and pick and decide and bring back to their house uh, those items and cook for their family as well. So we we with, we are feeding people in many different ways uh, with City Harvest, but the organization has grown tremendously. Uh, from uh, 30 something years ago, having people uh, from the organization picking up food in garbage bags and, and giving back to homeless, and then in containers, and then having a truck, and then two trucks, and then 22 trucks, and now two trailers, 27 trucks. Um, we, we are really, really um, becoming much essential to the to helping fight hunger in the city. It's also very important to know that it's food that will go to waste. That food is very fresh, is very nutritional. Uh, it's nothing wrong with it. Of City Harvest on the beginning was also only picking up food from, from supermarkets and, and restaurants and hotels. But today City Harvest works with farmers and and big companies, and we—it's why we are able to have so many um, millions pounds of food of uh, that can be distributed. Is because you have a farmer in in a in a Idaho who says, "I have 50 tons of potatoes," and we like, "Don't worry, we're sending a truck and we bring back the potatoes to New York." I'm struck in in listening to what you know the the idea of growth and and how much City Harvest is accomplishing, but I'm also struck by, and I was curious what you thought, that I feel like the ultimate goal should be that City Harvest doesn't exist, that we don't have so much food waste and we don't have such a continued problem with hunger in one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest countries in the world. Not only the wealthiest country, but the the wealthiest city in the world. I mean, New York is, is the richest city by far. And uh, we have this contrast where we have very wealthy people and we have very poor people living next to each other. Now, the rich shouldn't feel guilty about being successful, but it's, I think it's, if you are successful, it's essential to think about the community that is in need. I don't think we will ever be able to stop uh, the, the problem of poverty or, or 
hunger for one reason is that America is uh, in usually very open to immigration and, and New York City is, uh, hosts a lot of people coming from all over the world and they come here and they don't necessarily have an education, they don't necessarily speak English and it's a, it's a process and the first generation needs help and uh, it, it will be like that, I think, forever, uh, unfortunately, but at the same time, it's it's comforting to know that people will come here because it's a better place than where they are and that they can find uh, some support. I think that's a great way to put it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to hear Eric's Julia moment. You're invited to join us in person in Washington, D.C. on October 13th for the presentation of the 2022 Julia Child Award to Grace Young at the 8th Annual Smithsonian Food History Gala. It will be a delicious evening celebrating Grace's advocacy and Chinese-American culinary contributions. You can find tickets, they're on sale now, at amhistory.si.edu forward slash donate forward slash food hyphen gala or just uh, Google Smithsonian Food History Gala. Funds raised support the Smithsonian's American Food History Project, which includes the preservation of Julia's Kitchen. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at juliachildjcf. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Eric, what's your Julia moment? So my Julia moment is very interesting. Um, Julia was coming to the Bernardin, I wouldn't say very often, but when she was in New York. And um, she was a fan of Le Bernardin. And uh, I was a young chef at the time. And I was afraid of Julia because... I, did, I came in America without speaking a word of English. So my English was very limited. And when I started at Le Bernardin, my English was a bit better, but my understanding was limited. And to me, Julia was sounding, and I don't want to be disrespectful because, of course, I, I love Julia and, and I, I admire what she has accomplished for us. But Julia, when she was speaking to me, was basically like... <laughs> You're and when she was like, speaking English. And I was like, oh my God, what did she say to me? <laughs> I would be always like so frightened. Anyway, one day she comes and um, I created um, a salad. I remember it was a, an exotic salad with seared tuna, but barely seared um, and very, very rare, although not raw, warm. And... Uh, it was a new dishes, so I was happy to serve it to Julia. And at the end, she asked for me to go to the table. So I went, and of course, I was terrorized already <laughs> of not understanding what she would say. <laughs> so I understood Eric. And then she basically thanked me for the great dinner or great lunch. It was a lunch. She said, thank you for the great lunch. And I understood that. And then I understood also what she said after that. She said... It would have been very, very nice if you didn't forget to cook the tuna. <laughs> and I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I stayed in front of Julia. I smiled. I said, thank you. And I didn't want to go into the explanation that I thought uh, tuna rare is very nice. <laughs> and uh, that was a, a funny moment that I cherish because... It was a lot of um, a lot of uh, love and teasing and uh, and respect, but at the same time, she was very Julia, very direct, and I was. <laughs> she was not afraid to give you constructive criticism or feedback. No, 
And I never cooked the tuna well done for the next client after that comment anyway. So we stayed on our positions, but it was, <laughs> it was a funny moment. Yeah, that is funny. You know, but she spoke to you when you're talking about she spoke quickly. It was in English. She didn't speak to you in French. No, no, she spoke in English. Uh, she spoke in English. I think she wanted to make sure that I can understand English one day in my life. Yeah. Because <laughs> she would speak French, and I, I don't think she forgot French over It's interesting. And also, I mean, to some degree, that's respectful, right? She's not assuming that you don't speak English well enough that she should switch to French. And if you're not spe switching to French, she's not going to switch either, I guess. She was very respectful, and she was very funny and, and very smart, and, uh, and it, it was all good. <laughs> no, I think that's a quintessential Julia comment, too. I think, you know, she thought and they expected something a certain way and wasn't a big, you know, fan of these sort of shifts in how you would cook tuna. No, because Escoffier didn't have that uh, recipe <laughs> in this book. I know, I have to ask someone if Julie evolved to eating, you know, uh, the tuna barely seared. and um, But I'd be very happy with that. I love it that way. Well, thank you, Eric, for sharing that Julia moment. And uh, thank you for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, and by the way, this year we are celebrating our 50-year anniversary. At Le Bernardin. At Le Bernardin. Ah, félicitations. 50 years of moving forward. I think that's, that, that's great. And um, I think uh, you've done a great job of kind of explaining how a restaurant that is so classic and, and also actually what we haven't talked about is how difficult it is for any restaurant to last as long as Le Bernardin, especially a fine dining one. That's a, a huge accomplishment. So many congratulations. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. For more from Eric, it's at Chef Eric Repair on Facebook and at Eric Repair on Instagram and Twitter. It's at Le Bernardin NY on Instagram and Twitter. And you can go to le-bernardin.com for reservations and menus. For the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest on upcoming events in Santa Barbara. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.